Please be advised, the following contains descriptions of violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. It started in 1986. A faceless serial killer began stalking children on the Cape Flats. By 1994, the bodies of over 20 boys who had been sodomized and then strangled to death had been found. The person responsible for the killings became known as the Station Strangler. When Norman Simons, a schoolteacher, was arrested in 1994, there was a sense of collective relief that the monster behind the murders was finally behind bars. In the public's imagination, he was the Station Strangler, but he was convicted of just one of the murders, that of 10-year-old Elroy von Royen in 1994. Almost three decades have passed since Simons was jailed for life in 1995, but nagging questions have remained about this case. I'm Catherine Rice, and in this podcast, The Unsolved Murders of the Station Strangler, we'll hear from forensic psychologist Professor Gerard Labuskakni, who was involved in reinvestigating the case in 2010. Labuskakni is the former head of the SA Police's Specialized Investigative Psychology section, and he is also the author of The Profiler Diaries. He joins us in our Johannesburg studio. Gerard, it was 1994. There was a lot going on in the country. Do you think the political climate at the time was a factor in the arrest of Simons? I think you can't separate what was taking place in the country from that. I mean, we saw that with uh, you know, Moses Atole, which was around about the same time. You know, even Nelson Mandela was speaking out. I think the police were under a lot of pressure to show that they are now a police service for everybody. I mean, whether or not it's political pressure, you had a lot of pressure from the community. So a lot of pressure just, I think, as, as police, but I think as, a, as, as an organization. And I think you can perhaps say politically also. What was the modus operandi of the station strangler? Well, essentially, young boys seem to have been lured into the sort of dunes in and around the sort of Cape Flat areas and then strangled and then, you know, seems to have been anally raped. That seems to be the general sort of picture uh, of these types of cases. Simons was convicted of one of the murders, which means there are at least 21 unsolved murder cases. Do you think they got the wrong guy and shouldn't have gotten a conviction? That's a that's a sort of a difficult and a two-part question. If you look at the fact that after Simons was arrested, there were still some murders of young children, young boys in a very similar fashion, then definitely he wasn't the only one. So that's the first issue. And when we re-looked at the cases, you know, sort of 29, 2009, 2010, we found other cases that, you know, were very, very similar in, in, in circumstance, victimology, location, etc., to his cases. There was an interesting documentary done a couple of years ago where they interviewed the prosecutor, uh, and he says that he was very surprised they got a conviction. You know, it really hinged around an identity parade. So it's, it's one thing to say he was only convicted on one. He wasn't even charged with the other ones, which means the prosecution felt there wasn't a prima facie, in other words, an on-the-face-of-it case against him for the, any of the other cases. You know, we have one case that he's convicted of, but... What we also looked at was that back then, you know, remember, DNA was in its infancy in forensics in the world, let alone in South Africa. And the sort of primitive form of DNA that they did have and they did do at the time didn't match Norman Simons. That particular sample was later reprocessed using more modern DNA technology, and it still didn't match Simons. And then when we went to look at the cases 2009-2010, we managed to track down another sample that we then had processed using, obviously, the modern technology. And that matched the earlier sample, 
So we have two, two DNA-linked cases for sure to the same suspect DNA and also didn't match Norman Simon. So however you want to play it, there was definitely someone else out there murdering young children at the same time and then someone else was definitely continuing to murder children after Simon. So I personally really don't think we should look at him as the station strangler. And I think that's what's so scary about this case is that really in the public's imagination, people really do think that he is the station strangler. Yet there's all this other stuff that's coming to light and particularly DNA evidence. And I think that's fascinating that you know, DNA evidence has moved on. We've got much better technologies now. Is there potential that whoever the station strangler might be or whoever is responsible for those other children's murders, could there be a match on the DNA database? How does that work? When you get into the history of DNA in South Africa, back then, in the time of Norman Simons, it was a very, very primitive form of DNA testing. So that's the one aspect. I don't think there were any other DNA samples that could that were available to be tested. Um, so I don't think there is any other DNA that could be processed from the available exhibits that were collected. That's the first issue. You also have to understand, up until about, <clears throat> I would say, 2011, 2012, not all DNA that was collected from crime scenes was processed. But let's just say, for example, a rape victim, and a DNA was sent, um, collected at, say, the autopsy or by the doctors doing the medical examination. It was not submitted to the forensics laboratory and put on the database. Until the suspect was identified, then they would say, right, send in that suspect's sample plus the crime scene sample and we will process that. And the reason being is that they were trying to look at it more from a financial point of view is why are we processing all these samples if we don't have a suspect to compare it to. So the DNA database up until about 2012, 2013 was only being used to link a suspect in a particular case. It wasn't being thought of as a database for the purposes of intelligence. So it was really only after we had sort of the, the quarry murder series uh, and, and some of the lapses that occurred in that particular series, which I discuss in my book, that an instruction was given that all DNA that's collected must be sent in and processed and put on the database. And that, of course, created a massive explosion of cases being linked to each other. You know, we literally had an explosion of serial rapes that were suddenly identified and, of course, some murder series. But when they made that decision that from now on, all DNA will be processed, even if there's no suspect identified in the case. They didn't go back retrospectively and go back into the historical cases and process them. That just would have created a massive backlog. So what I'm trying to get to is it is possible that, you know, other cases occurred where a sus this suspect or the suspect whose DNA we do know appeared in the Station Strangler series might have committed, say, rapes of kids, other incidences, but the DNA wasn't as I said, loaded onto the DNA database. It was kept somewhere. It wasn't backdated when we started to process the DNA in the sort of, as I said, 2010, 2012, 2013 era. And so there could have been cases that occurred that DNA wasn't ever loaded onto the database. But definitely, since all DNA was being processed and loaded onto the system from about 2012, 2013, if something had happened from that suspect, it would have been picked up by the two cases that we had processed the old DNA and put it on the new system. So the question would be, and of course, but if that suspect was quite in his, you know, quite old maybe by the time of the Station Strangler series, um, let's say most of our murder series offenders are around about 29 when they start. So, you know, add on a couple of years, he would have already been 50s, 60s. Uh, would he be still active? So the DNA isn't an absolute solution to what happened with this case 
for the historical reasons that I've just mentioned in terms of how the police processed uh, DNA. And like I said, if it's using the old technology, they didn't go back and reprocess all those samples anyway. But you were involved in reinvestigating the case. Can you tell us about that and, and particularly the other cases that you stumbled across in that investigation? Uh, there had been some queries from the Western Cape province and we decided that we'd always wanted to go and have a relook at those cases. Um, so we went down and essentially went through all the mortuary records um, from that time period and after Simons was arrested and literally pulled each record, dusted it off and checked is it a child murder. And through that, I think, I can't remember exactly the number of cases, it was a handful, uh, it wasn't a lot of cases, I would say maybe between three and five that we thought well, that were young boys who had been strangled and, and sodomized. Um, uh, that again had very similar characteristics. They weren't necessarily in the exact same area. Um, some of them were a bit, but they were in the general sort of Cape Town area. So very similar types of, of crime scenes. Um, and we followed those up. We looked if there were any identifiable suspects. You know, there were one or two people who possibly came up. I think one had p passed away since then. Um, but uh, yeah, so definitely we know that, you know, Norman Simons, if you want to say that he is definitely linked to that one murder, he wasn't the only person killing people. And I think also back in that, those times, I think it was difficult for people to consider that, that there could be more than one person doing the same horrific type of behavior. Well, I, I mean, I remember covering stories back in those years. There were a lot of children that went missing, a lot of children who were murdered. Um, when Matthew Olson went missing in 1997, Norman Simons was already behind bars, but potentially a case like that could have been could have been the actual station strangler i mean that's that's really the the the, the reality of the story of of these cases and this horror yep unfortunately it is gerard tell me what about parole for simons what is the current status and i mean because i think in the, in the minds of the public he is the station strangler how does that impact on his parole I have very little doubt that that he's being viewed, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or under the table, he's being viewed as a serial murderer and the station strangler. So without a doubt, that will be affecting his ability to get parole. Um, you know, if he's been there for 30, I think it's 30 years, we said, uh, almost. He was jailed in 1995. So it's, it's almost 30 years, almost three decades. If he hasn't behaved badly in prison and he's participated in whatever programs, why hasn't he gotten parole already? And, and I can almost guarantee you it's because people view him as the station strangler, even if he's been absolutely well behaved, which to my knowledge, he has been, um, you know, very well behaved in prison. Um, I, it's probably because they see him as the, the station strangler. If they were to let him out, what outcry would there be? Have other child murderers been released already by this point in time in their sentences for, with similar perhaps behavior in prison, then he should be released, to be honest with you, if that's if he's performed the same as other people have been released. Do you think these cases will ever be solved? I don't think so, uh, to be honest with you. I think, you know, unless someone does a deathbed confession, as I said, from a forensic point of view, we followed up all the exhibits we could trace to see if we could explore any further forensic options, you know, with modern technology or something that had been overlooked. And we kind of, all we could find, we, we looked at and processed. Um, like I said, there was one person which we thought was a possible good candidate, but if I recall correctly, he'd already passed away. Um, would there be enough to go and say, you know, we want to exhume the body, etc.? Probably not. So I, I don't think we're ever going to get, um, you know, the families, are, I don't think, to be honest with you, are probably not going to get the answers that they would love to be, obviously, and deserve to get. 
could you tell us how old you think he could be based on your pro profiling experience? The average serial murderer, when they start their series, and I mean average means you've got younger, you've got older, uh, from the research we did, was, was about 29 when they, when they commit their first murder. So if we have the first murder uh, was in, what, 1986, I think, um, you know, that's, sure, if he was 29 then, that is now 14, you know, 36 years ago. So we're talking someone in his late, mid-late 60s by now, if you just take the average. And of course he might be dead. We'll never know. Absolutely, yeah. He died in a car accident, old age, various other things. Um, you don't know, yeah. Gerard, when I look back at those years when I was a young journalist covering those stories of a lot of children that went missing on the Cape Flats and that were found murdered, you know, and I remember at the time covering them, everyone was like, it must be the work of a serial killer. But there, were, there was also an indication that police were saying, well, actually, it could be many, it could be many suspects involved here with different cases. Is South Africa a country where we are breeding serial killers? What is, what is the situation in South Africa and how common is this? Well, look, we definitely have a high rate of murder series. Um, it's one of those things where we have pretty good systems, at least in modern times, for identifying whether it be through DNA, like I mentioned a moment ago, um, training of detectives, we have the old investigative psychology section. So we have a lot of things in place that are very helpful for identifying series, which other, other countries actually don't have. So that also means we're, our ability to identify them and pick them up is much, is much better. So we're perhaps a victim of our success in that sense. But yes, we do have an incredibly high murder rate compared to other countries, which means you also are going to have a higher um, serial rate uh, automatically, and you'll have a higher intimate partner murder rate, and you'll have a higher um, this, that, and the other rate of murder, um, just because we have higher stats in general. Um, but I mean, even with that, it does seem like we do have more than perhaps other countries. But again, to quantify that exactly is very difficult because other countries don't have accurate statistics. Why that is the case, I don't know. Um, I do, on the one hand, say we don't know why someone becomes a serial, but we do know who allows them to become, and that is the police. If you don't catch him after the first one, he has the opportunity to commit the second, and the third, and the fourth. So, you know, I often say that the, 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 the more series you have and the higher the victim count, it's, it's a commentary on the quality of policing in your country. So, you know, there's, there's various factors. The why as to do we have it, I can't really answer. But as I said, our best solution is, is equip the police to investigate these better. As I said, we do have a lot of things in place. Um, the investigative psychology unit that I used to work at is, is some of the most experienced serial investigators in the world. You know, we've, we've very rarely had an ongoing series that didn't get solved. In the case of, for example, a recent story now that's just happened of a four-year-old little girl who was murdered, is that, you know, in, in a case like that, would the police then have to start tracking back and seeing if, if this suspect is guilty of something like that before? I mean, we seem to have a new headline almost every week of a child being murdered in the most horrific of ways. But yet not all of them, well, many of them are convicted of just that one murder. What's behind that? Yeah, look, I, th I think every time you have a sexual murder, whether it's an adult or a child that is the victim, um, sexual murder means that there's not only that there's rape, but that there's some sexual element to the crime scene. You know, the victim might be completely naked, but not necessarily evidence of actual rape. And it's typically outside in the open areas. Then you definitely want to look at it as a potential serial, because that is exactly what a serial crime scene looks like. 
So a responsible investigation obviously would submit any DNA to the laboratory, which would then match if there is existing DNA on the database or in the future if there's existing DNA and that detective and the other detective would be notified by the DNA database management section of the forensic laboratory. Um, but yes, I mean, it would be the responsible thing to do if it's specifically if it's a stranger sexual murder to start making inquiries about where this person used to stay and where there's similar types of cases in that particular area. Um, but that's a lot of extra effort and work for an investigator who his commander might say, listen, you only worry about the cases we have in front of us. You don't go looking in neighboring station areas for their cases. It's none of your business, um, which is not the great, you know, not the best attitude to have when it comes to trying to catch serials. But that's unfortunately very often the reality that detectives are overworked uh, and don't have enough resources and to tell them to go look for other cases. It's almost like an impossible expectation on their behalf. I think what you were saying earlier about being able to link these cases through the DNA database, the case of that serial rapist several years ago who was arrested for an assault, and then he was actually linked to between 30 and 40, or I think it was as many as 30 cases, um, and that was through the DNA database. So DNA seems to be one of our biggest weapons, would you say? It definitely is, but you must remember a few things. Firstly, you have to find the body, or if it's a living victim, they have to come forward and report the case within a certain period of time when you're still able to obtain the DNA. You know, bodies get discovered in a decomposed state, and still DNA processing, depending on if there's a backlog or not, can take six months. So we always say that the, the, more, the best way and quickest way to identify a serial is through the modus operandi. You know, what happened to the victim? Where did it happen? Because we know serials like to group their crime scenes in a certain geographical area. Um, and is it similar victimology? You know, that that's your best and, and, and immediately and cheapest av available system for saying, hey, I think we have an issue here. Um, DNA can then be used to confirm that forensically. But like I said, there's various problems with DNA. If anything, just the slow processing of DNA because of the, the mismanagement um, of the sort of DNA resources. At the time of the Station Stranglers murders, what do you think investigators would have done in terms of sitting down and going, okay, let's create a profile of this person? You know, I've read Catch, Catch Me a Killer, I think, by Mickey Pistorius. She was a profiler back in those years. I'm not sure if it was during those years. Would somebody like her have been involved in profiling the Station Strangler? How would it have worked? Can you take us through that? If I recall correctly, she was only called in after his arrest, if I'm, I'm talking under correction here. So, you know, and again, she only started doing this kind of work in about 1994, I think more around the time of the Moses Sitole cases. So that, in those days, it wouldn't have really been a great resource because again, she didn't have experience yet in serial investigations and profiling. So she was kind of put into that position without yet having, you know, developed the knowledge and skills. Um, and remember, these cases started in 86, 87, 88, and there were probably other ones that for some reason didn't um, get identified for various reasons. So the concept, even the word serial murder would probably have been not something that was even known or used, and we definitely didn't have a strategy. You know, it's only from 94 that we started to actually have um, a strategy and training and a way of understanding how to investigate these cases, which definitely in, the, in, in 94 would have been in its infancy. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation and thank you for your time. That was forensic psychologist Professor Gerard Labaskachny 
The families of the children who were murdered certainly deserve answers and justice. It's a tragedy that has been burned into the memories of many South Africans. The truth and the answers to our questions will hopefully one day come to light. I'm Catherine Rice, and you've been listening to the unsolved murders of the Station Strangler.